Good evening. The National Rifle Association loses an important battle as New York State presses a lawsuit bent on shutting down the gun rights group. Israel says it has plans for a long bombing campaign in response to Hamas rocket attacks and oxygen for COVID in equity rules. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. The National Rifle Association's bankruptcy filing was rejected by a Texas judge, leaving the state vulnerable, leaving the organization vulnerable to New York Attorney General Letitia James, who's threatening to dissolve the powerful gun group. James made the announcement moments ago. I'm proud to announce that just a little while ago, a federal bankruptcy court in Texas rejected the NRA's claims and dismissed the bankruptcy proceeding in its entirety. Weeks of testimony demonstrated that the NRA and Mr. LaPierre simply filed Chapter 11 to avoid accountability, um, and specifically, um, they attempted to um, evade the laws of the state of New York, and we're concerned about our efforts at dissolution. Um, uh, our uh, attempts to seek relief uh, for dissolution. Um, the trial underscored that the NRA's fraud and abuse continued long after we filed our suit, as the board was deceived when bankruptcy language was hidden in Mr. LaPierre's contract earlier this year. And today's order reaffirms that the NRA does not get to, to dictate if and where it will answer for its actions. In fact, the court clearly said that the NRA did not file the bankruptcy petition in good faith. Um, the rot runs deep, which is why we will now focus on uh, and continue our case in New York. We will continue to press our case, which seeks the organization's dissolution, the removal of Mr. LaPierre and corporate secretary and general counsel John Frazier, um, full restitution of tens of millions of dollars to Mr. LaPierre, Mr. Frazier, the former treasurer and chief financial officer, Woody Phillips, and the former chief of staff and the executive director of general operations, Joshua Powell, we're seeking penalties and we're seeking a bar against the foreign named individuals so that they are never able to serve on a board um, of a charity in New York State. And to be clear, today's court sends a loud and clear message, just like our lawsuit did last summer, that no one is above the law, not even one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in the country. It's also important um, that at the end of the trial, Judge Hale basically asked a question um, and he asked the parties to focus on this particular question in their response and in their closing comments and their closing arguments. And that question was as follows. While one purpose of Chapter 11 is to prevent the unnecessary dissolution of an otherwise viable debtor, the debtor being the NRA, is that purpose broad enough to include a situation where the debtor is seeking protection from a potential dissolution? That would not be a collateral effect of litigation, but rather the intended relief sought. And it would only occur upon a judicial determination that, that dissolution is in the best interest of the public. And clearly the answer to all of that is that the bankruptcy code is not broad enough um, to evade uh, regulatory oversight, regulatory authority um, by the state of New York. Um, and as a result of that, um, our case... Uh, going forward, seeking the intended relief, including but not limited to dissolution, will continue. With this bankruptcy petition behind us for now, um, is there a potential for fraud charges for LaPierre? So at this point in time, what we are doing is analyzing, analyzing the decision of Judge Hale. Um, but in the decision, if you, you should note that there continues to be ongoing and lingering issues, as the judge referenced, 
of secrecy and lack of transparency. In fact, um, in the judge's decision, it goes on to say that the NRA uh, violated, recently violated approval procedures for contracts in excess of $100,000. That was recent. In addition, the decision goes on to say that Mr. LaPierre is still making additional financial disclosures. And so the rot runs deep. And we, um, in regards to our case, there was not a, a stay issued, and we are in the midst of discovery. And so discovery will uh, continue at this point in time. And as Attorney General Letitia James, Wayne LaPierre is chief executive of the National Rifle Association. After a weeks-long trial, U.S. bankruptcy judge Harlan Cooter Hale on Tuesday dismissed the Chapter 11th case, which also included a proposal to reincorporate the New York Base Association in Texas. New York officials claim the, the filing was in bad faith, a bad faith effort to use the protections of bankruptcy to avoid its lawsuit. The judge wrote that he agreed with the New York Attorney General that the NRA is using this bankruptcy case to address a regulatory enforcement problem, not a financial one. And fuel shortages have widened across the East Coast as consumers continue to panic buy amid the fallout from a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline last week by Russian ransomware group Darkside. The 5,500-mile pipeline system transport more than 100, transports more than 100 million gallons of gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and heating oil per day, or roughly 45% of fuel consumed on the eastern seaboard between the Gulf Coast and New York metro area. Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm made the announcement today. This morning, the Environmental Protection Agency issued a waiver of the blend of fuels for the affected states to uh, allow us to use non-compliant fuel and boost available supply where it's needed. Further, the Department of Transportation's Federal Rail Administration is working to enlist rail operators in an effort to transport fuel from ports inland to and from. We will have no tolerance for price gouging. These states who are impacted, even with the turning on of the pipeline system, they still may feel a supply crunch as Colonial fully resumes. But the American people can feel assured that this administration is working with the company to get it resumed as soon as possible. At the same time, it certainly is a reminder that we need to take a hard look at how we need to harden our necessary infrastructure, and that includes cyber threats. And that's Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said he's suspending state taxes on motor fuels through Saturday to offset increasing prices after the computer attack led the key pipeline that carries fuel to much of Georgia to shut down. That's the Colonial Pipeline. The Republicans today, today said he wanted to provide price relief from increasing fuel prices. Gas prices in Georgia were averaging $2.87 uh, a gallon Tuesday, according to the uh, AAA, AAA, that's an 11-cent jump since Monday and a 16-cent jump since last week. And in international news, a confrontation between Israel and Hamas sparked a week of tensions in contested Jerusalem escalating today as Israel unleashed new airstrikes on Gaza while militants barraged Israel with hundreds of rockets. The exchange killed a number of militants and civilians in Gaza and at least three people in Israel. The barrage of rockets from the Gaza Strip and airstrikes into the territory continued almost nonstop throughout the day in what appeared to be some of the most intense fighting between Israel and Hamas since the 
their 2014 war. The fire was so relentless that Israel's Iron Dome rocket defense system seemed to be overwhelmed. Columns of smoke rose from many places in Gaza. By late today, the violence extended to Tel Aviv, which came under fire from a barrage of rockets launched from the Gaza Strip. A 50-year-old woman was killed. The outgoing volley set off air raid sirens across the city and the main international airport closed temporarily. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki earlier today. And support for Israel's security, for its legitimate right to defend itself and its people is fundamental and will never waver. We condemn ongoing rocket attacks by Hamas and other terrorist groups, including against Jerusalem. We also stand against extremism that has inflicted violence on both communities. Jerusalem, a city of such importance to people of faith around the world, must be a place of coexistence. And U.S. officials in recent weeks have spoken candidly with Israeli officials about how evictions of Palestinian families who have lived for years sometimes decades in their homes and of demolitions of these homes work against our common interests in achieving a solution to the conflict. In the coming days, as Muslims gather with family and friends to celebrate Eid uh, and Jews join together to mark the, the beginning of Shabbat, let us affirm that all people of faith deserve to enjoy these important celebrations without fear of violence and work toward peace and calm for all. Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The Institute for Policy Studies fellow Phyllis Bennis says Hamas may have broken the law in launching rockets into Israel, but Israel and the United States are really to blame. It's a very dangerous situation, partly in human terms, because we're already seeing at least 29 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, nine of them children, four of them women. Uh, and the bombing is continuing, and we know that that leads to more people being killed. Uh, we also know that despite the high court delaying for a month the decision on the eviction that's planned for families in Sheikh Jarrah, a community, a, a neighborhood in East, occupied East Jerusalem, uh, the, the moves towards house demolitions and evictions in Jerusalem are continuing. So on a human scale, this is very, very dangerous. The other thing that's dangerous about it, Paul, is that there's a tendency, whenever there's an escalation of violence like this, for the attention, the global attention, to escalate right with it, but to focus on demanding that, quote, both sides need to escalate, both sides need to return to calm. And the problem is that what's calm for Israel is anything but calm for Palestinians living under occupation in colonial-style settlements, uh, outside of colonial-style settlements. And it, it's a horrific situation that is not given attention that it needs until the Palestinians resist in some way. So, you know, we're looking at a situation where we know that history is determined by when you start the clock. And too often the media in this country and officials in this country and too many others start the clock for example, in this case, when there were rockets fired from uh, from Gaza. Yeah. Now, those rockets were, in fact, illegal. They, they were – there was no way to prevent them from hitting civilians. Uh, but nonetheless, they didn't just happen. They happened in response to an escalation in Israeli military activities, specifically the attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque on, on Sunday morning when the mosque was raided by Israeli soldiers and they used – stun guns and, and uh, tear gas inside the mosque. It was, it was shocking on one of the last days of Ramadan. And that's what enraged people. It doesn't make it legal for, for rockets to be fired, but it means there was a reason for it. 
it all goes back to the role of the United States, which has been to provide absolute impunity for Israeli violations of international law, violations of the Geneva Convention, uh, for decades, along with providing $3.8 billion a year of our tax money directly to the Israeli military. And you have President Biden saying explicitly during his campaign and as president that he disagrees with certain of the more extreme decisions that the Trump administration made about moving the embassy, uh, the acceptance of, of Israeli annexation of parts of the West Bank, etc. But he's also made very clear that he has no intention of reversing those decisions. And that's very dangerous because it normalizes this kind of extremism and makes it official U.S. policy. So for Biden to say, well, I stand for human rights, my administration is grounded in human rights, and I don't like these moves, that frankly doesn't mean anything to anybody, as long as the decision is to leave them standing. You know, it's the actions that matter, not the nice words. We've had a lot of nice words. We're hearing calls for both sides to de-escalate as if we were dealing with a border dispute between... I don't know, Peru and Ecuador or something, two equal states arguing over a border. That's not what we have here. You know, the U.S. spent 25 years in the so-called peace process, pulling together both Israelis and Palestinians, putting them around a table and saying, here, now negotiate as if they were equals. This is not the basis for negotiations. We're looking at massive violations of the crime of apartheid, massive violations in terms of colonialism. These things have to end. And that is Phyllis Benison of the Institute for Policy Studies. The barrage of rockets and airstrikes was preceded by hours of clashes Monday between Palestinians and Israeli security forces, including dramatic confrontations at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, a sacred site to both Jews and Muslims. The current violence, like previous rounds, including the last intifada or uprising, has been fueled by conflicting claims over Jerusalem, which is the emotional core of the long conflict. In a sign of widening unrest, hundreds of residents of Arab communities across Israel staged overnight demonstrations denouncing the recent actions of Israeli security forces against Palestinians. It was one of the largest protests by Palestinian citizens in Israel in recent years. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Anthony Fauci on Tuesday clashed with Senator Rand Paul, a Republican in Kentucky, over the role of the Wuhan China Virology Lab in the origins of COVID-19. During a Senate hearing on the pandemic response, Paul alleged that the National Institutes of Health had been sending funding to the Wuhan lab, which then juiced up a virus that was originally found in bats to create a supervirus that can infect human cells. Paul pressed Fauci on the theory that the novel coronavirus was created in the Wuhan lab and then somehow escaped, either because of an accident or because it was deliberately released. Scientists in the U.S. have long known how to mutate animal viruses to infect humans. For years, Dr. Ralph Barrick, a virologist in the U.S., has been collaborating with Dr. Shi Zengli of the Wuhan Virology Institute, sharing his discoveries about how to create superviruses. This gain-of-function research has been funded by the NIH. The collaboration between the U.S. and the Wuhan Virology Institute continues. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entirely and completely incorrect. 
that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute Do they fund of Dr. Barrick? We do not fund... Do you fund gain, Dr. Barrick's gain-of-function research? D Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina. And that is Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci in one of their uh, – this is now several I've seen contests between these two over the source of the coronavirus. Jonathan Latham, Latham – pardon me. Jonathan Latham is a virologist at the Bioresource Project. He's the executive director. He's been warning that an organization known as the Echo Health Alliance has been working with the United States and Chinese governments to develop new viruses. In our view, the – the overriding strong probability is that the virus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, most likely. But there are other labs in Wuhan that are also possibilities, but that is the very strongest. So the question then becomes, was it a virus that escaped because of gain-of-function research, or was it a virus that just was harvested from the wild or from some other source that then escaped? What's gain of function mean? Gain of function is kind of a slippery concept because what, what you're really talking about is mixing and matching viruses either with different hosts or with each other. Every virus is adapted to a specific host and a specific tissue type and a specific set of circumstances. Some of them are more adapted to humans. Some of them are more adapted to bats. Some of them are more adapted to other animals. And so virologists want to know the difference between all those things. So what they do is they cut and paste viruses together. You know, if you put a mouse virus together with a human virus and put it into a human cell, you're creating a gain-of-function organism that didn't exist in the wild. Is this used in warfare and things like that? All of this research has all these kind of scary overlaps with the possibility of biowarfare. The possibility is... First of all, that you make offensive weapons with by cutting and pasting viruses. But the other possibility is that you make a virus that you can defend against, but other people can't, for example. So that means maybe you hold a vaccine that the other side doesn't. And so if you make a virus that they have no defense against, that can amount to a biowarfare project. You have all this kind of overlapping funding of this research from the military both in China and the U.S., the military is funding a large proportion of this kind of research. And so this creates room for accusations, but also it's just simply a source of concern. The Echo Health Alliance, uh, what yeah. are they? What's their role in all of this? They are an organization that's based on the idea of One Health, which is that essentially humans are damaging the natural environment and causing pathogens to emerge. But what has happened to that organization is it basically turned that idea on its head and it started going looking for pathogens. And that means in other countries, and it has taken money from the military, for example, almost half its money has come from the military in the last 10 years. And they have been funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and part of the funding has gone to gain-of-function research. So they basically outsourced this kind of research to places like China. Where is this ending up? What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> That's anyone's guess. It depends on how strong the evidence is that comes out of China, especially 
about whether this was a lab-escaped virus. I mean, right now we think, as a virologist, I think that that evidence is really, really strong. The city coincidence, but you know, you have, it happens in Wuhan, where, which is an unlikely place for a bat coronavirus to emerge. And then you, you've got all these other kind of elements of the virus that are super coincidental with the interest of that particular institute. So if that all comes out and becomes better understood, and, and there seem to be elements of the media that are keen to discuss that, then this could go all kinds of places. Jonathan Latham is a virologist and founder of the Bioresources Project. As people in many places where the organization Doctors Without Borders operates are struggling to access oxygen for COVID-19 and other com- other medical needs, the group is calling for more to be done to ensure people everywhere can get that oxygen when they need it. In addition to the current COVID-19 catastrophe in India, the city of Aden, Yemen, is another prime example of the global oxygen shortage. The Doctors Without Borders supported hospital there was more than 100% occupied in recent days and has been going through 600 oxygen cylinders per day while still having to turn away people who are sick. There have also been shortages of the precious gas in Brazil, South Africa, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Angela Uyen is a doctor who co-wrote the report by Doctors Without Borders on oxygen shortages. It's not a silly question at all. Many people wonder, what's the deal with it? I mean, we have air with oxygen around us, as you said. And the fact is that medical oxygen is a very specific one because it's pure oxygen, and and this purity is necessary for uh, like for the lungs who are suffering or are struggling to take the oxygen from the air. So we try to put this pure oxygen in the lungs because these lungs, in the case of COVID or other other diseases, are not functioning well. So the surface has been reduced. So in order to to give the most of oxygen we can, there is a process of purification of the air. So it takes only oxygen. It takes other gases out of the air and gives pure oxygen to the people. Why is there a shortage? Let's jump right into it. India, we've seen the films. We've seen the uh, report, read the reports. How did we get to that? And is India the only – what's the situation in India? But that's, according to your report, not the only place that this problem. Medical oxygen is a problem in several low- and middle-income countries. It is a, an infrastructural problem, you know. It's a development problem. So we see in many high-income countries, they haven't struggled with this because usually you have pipes that comes from the walls in, the oxy- in, in hospitals. So oxygen comes from the walls, and it's because they have a plant. They develop their health system, so they have plants either next to their hospitals or in their hospitals. What happens in middle-income and low-income countries in several places, in less developed countries, is that they don't have these plants or they don't have these means to produce oxygen locally. So many times they have to transport the oxygen from other places. And this is very challenging because we are talking about big cylinders. And so this is heavy. It can be dangerous to transport. And, of course, it's costly for, for the health system to do this. So in the case of India, for instance, the demand of, of oxygen has been so high and the health system has, has only few. In, in the case of Mumbai, for instance, is one of the epicenters. Uh, they, they don't have enough oxygen production. 
So the demand has been way higher than the offer, and and indeed they haven't they haven't been able to mobilize enough enough resources in terms of of cylinders, tanks, and other and other means to mobilize oxygen to the places where they need it because they didn't have the plants in place. Brazil does not seem like a poor country. It's a, a fast developing country that there are inequalities within countries too. So the place where we are in Brazil working is in the is in the Amazon area, right? So I this see. area that that is kind of rural, they didn't have a health a, a strong or a developed health system. I don't think it's the same case in Sao Paulo. It's not the same to be in the capital than in the Amazon area, right? So and indeed, within systems within countries, you can see these inequalities. What can we do about this? Yeah, indeed, there are like, for instance, there are several things we can do. There are tools for oxygen delivery that are smaller than plants. We are dealing with an emergency. Not everywhere we have the time to build a plant. Then we need to ask the government to calculate their needs and to be aware of the problem and to map the resources. But there is also a call for donors. And as we know, the, the, there is a, an oxygen task force that is part of the, of the accelerator. So this task force is also has uh, has the voice of several donors. I think the U.S. is a very important donor when we when it comes to global health. So I think it will be important to take a look at what they can do in countries where they are the main donors in terms of health. Angela Oyen is a doctor who co-wrote the report by Doctors Without Borders on Oxygen Shortages. She joins WBAI from Belgium. And finally, day two of the federal trial contempt of court trial for Stephen Donziger, the lawyer who sued Chevron for Amazon uh, for the for an Amazon oil spill and won nine point five billion dollars. And Rebecca Miles has this story. Back in federal court today for day two of the contempt of court trial for Stephen Donziger, continuing with prosecution witness Anne Champion. It was Champion who had primary responsibility for keeping after Donziger to sign forms assigning his interests over to Chevron in the summer and fall of 2018 as his share in, a, in an entity called Amazonia Recovery Limited. The current trial stems from a New York federal judge ruling in 2014 that the multi- billion dollar judgment Don Zagarot's helped to obtain against Chevron in Ecuador was fraudulent. The same judge hit Don Zagar with criminal charges in 2019 for violating court orders to hand over his devices, internet accounts and passport and not to profit or benefit from the Ecuadorian judgment. Don Zagar's lawyer argued on Monday that the U.S. District Court Judge Lewis Kaplan transformed those post-trial disputes from civil wrangling into criminal misdemeanor charges and it was gross overreach. Donziger has been on house arrest for over 600 days on allegations of contempt of court. In 2013, he won a landmarked $9.5 billion judgment against oil giant Chevron over the corporation's dumping of 16 billion gallons of oil into the Ecuadorian Amazon. Donziger, who has since been disbarred, says Chevron's legal attacks on him are meant to silence critics and stop other lawsuits against the company for environmental damage. Judge Preska barred Stephen from beginning his phone, bringing his phone into court today after doing so yesterday where he tweeted out coverage of his own trial. The judge said the prosecution assures her that unless cro- cross... 
Examination is crazy. The rest on Thursday. The trial will take Friday off and resume on Monday. Rebecca Miles, WBAI, New York.